Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for the wonderful mission that you have put into play in this world. You sent your Son to save sinners, and we're so grateful that you've brought us up into that mission. You have accomplished your good work on the cross and in the resurrection, and we are here for that reason. We're grateful that the mission goes on and that you continue to bring people into your kingdom. And we thank you that you would use us in that. We thank you that you would spread your word, your good news across this world through weak and frail vessels such as us. Thank you that we're not a hindrance to your purposes. We're not a distraction from your purposes. You've chosen to use human means to accomplish divine purposes. We marvel, Lord, we marvel that you could do such great things. Help us as we open your word together to see the big picture, to see the great mission that's been given to us and to worship you in the accomplishment of that mission. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Rather famously... John Piper opened his book on missions entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad, with these true words. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. He elaborates on this a couple of paragraphs later. Worship is the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missions begins and ends in worship. I want to fan the flames of mission this morning by pointing us to and leading us in worship of our great God. But before we dive into the last psalm of our series and the last psalm of the book of Psalms, Psalm 150, I want to take a moment and consider the constant, ongoing, eternal worship of God. The praise He deserves and the praise He's been receiving since creation and will continue to receive forever and ever. And after we've explored Psalm 150, we'll swing back around and consider how missions is the pathway to being caught up in the fullness of this worship even now. The worship of God began at the beginning. The book of Job, when Yahweh the Lord finally shows up to address Job personally, he gives us a unique glimpse into a behind-the-scenes look at Genesis 1, if you will. Job 38, verses 4 to 7, the Lord says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? 
Somewhere in the midst of that creation scene in Genesis 1, angelic beings were created. We don't get that detail in Genesis 1, but they're there. And as the earth comes into being, they're singing, they're shouting, they're worshiping right there from that moment. And on and on it goes. The worship of God continues constantly in heaven. We get a glimpse of this too in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The worship of God continues on earth also among God's people both now and forever. Psalm 45, 17, the psalmist says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. That's the business we're to be about making sure that the generations remember the name of our God. Psalm 145, verse 2, the psalmist commits to, Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Is that your commitment? Are you committed to praising the name of God openly every single day of your life? Because you should be. This is just a dress rehearsal for what you're going to be doing forever and ever and ever. You have the great privilege of being caught up in that great worship even now. In a limited sense, our bodies and our whole being can't give God the praise that He deserves. We're too small. But He calls us up into it anyway. And you get to be a participant, a joyful participant, even now in the praise of our great God. And you can be sure that will be your occupation forever and ever and ever and ever. So get your practice in now. As we turn to Psalm 150, we close out the book of Psalms with just praise. The book of Psalms, the Hebrew title of the book just means praises. And we've had a chance to dip into a little more than a dozen psalms. Most of them have been very positively oriented. Most of them have been praise kinds of psalms or wisdom psalms that instruct us in our walk with the Lord. But if you know anything about the bigger picture of the book of psalms, the vast majority of them are actually laments. We didn't really touch on any of those in our series on the Psalms, but they are laments, grieving and dealing with the difficulties and the brokenness of this world. Most of the Psalms, when we think about the book of Psalms, are prayers, asking God to be involved in our world and involved in our lives somehow. But how fitting it is that this final conclusion to the book of Psalms, the exclamation point at the end of the book, the climax of the book, There aren't any petitions. There aren't any requests. There's no hint of lament or grief. It's all unadulterated, unmixed, unblended praise of God. Let's read how that looks in these verses. The psalm opens and closes with hallelujah. We've talked about that little phrase. The psalmist looks out at the congregation of God's people and calls them all to praise 
Yah, using this abbreviated form of God's divine name, Yahweh. And so we see that at the beginning and the end, and everything in between is all about praise too. Let's read these verses again, Psalm 150. Praise Yah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise Yah. Praise Yah. So this great psalm of praise, it seems somewhat repetitive to us, but there is a structure here. There is an order in the way that this is laid out. In verse 1, the psalmist gives us a picture of where to praise, where to praise. First, he says, "Sing, uh, praise God in His sanctuary. Where's that? Well, for the psalmist, that's the temple in Jerusalem. That's a physical building that they've got to travel to, that they've got to go to, to be in a certain place to praise God. Now, certainly, you can praise God outside of that building, but for a Jewish person in the Old Testament, that is the place of praise. That's the place where God lives in a very particular way. And so you meet Him there at the sanctuary, the holy place. What about for us? I wonder if any of you have noticed in the time that I've been here, I never refer to this room as a sanctuary. That is intentional on my part. I always call this room an auditorium. Now, you don't have to follow that practice. You're accustomed to calling this a sanctuary and I'm not seeking to correct you on that, but I want to tell you there's a reason why I refuse to call this room or this building a sanctuary. Because it's not. It's not the holy place. It's not the place where God lives. It's not the place where you can meet with God. The scriptures are clear. We together are the holy place now. We are the temple of God, both individually and collectively. So how do you look at this verse from a Christian perspective as a follower of Jesus? You are the sanctuary. So the call then is to praise God wherever you are. You don't have to go to a particular place to praise God. You don't have to go to a particular place to meet with God. He is present with you every moment of every day in every place. There are no limits, no borders to that. You are the sanctuary. And I simply refuse to refer to a building or a physical location to remind myself of that truth. That I don't have to be in this room to praise God. I can be in my car all by myself. I can be out on the lawn like we have been singing God's praises. And it's no better or no worse than being in this room gathered together. This is only a holy place insofar as we, we have chosen to meet here normally. That's it. We've set it apart for this particular purpose. And that's good and fine. But we need to remember very clearly that now that Jesus has come, Jesus has replaced the temple. He announced its destruction in His ministry, 
And of course, he was talking at two levels, right? He announced that he would destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. And everybody thought he was talking about the Jewish temple, the Jerusalem temple. And of course, he said it in the temple. And so the confusion was expected, I think. And he was actually talking about the temple of his body. But now the truth of the matter is that he's announced the judgment on that holy place that everybody If you're going to meet with God, you've got to come to Jesus. You don't have to go to a temple in the Middle East. You don't have to go to a particular building anywhere. If you want to meet with God, if you want to know God, if you want to praise God, you go through Jesus. There is no other way. And so the temple is the sanctuary, the holy place is no longer a limiter or a barrier. It is now the people of God wherever they happen to be. So the psalmist begins there. Praise God in His sanctuary on earth, I think, is his focus. And then the second line, he lifts his eyes up and he says, Praise God in His mighty heavens. You might have a footnote in your Bible that tells you that this is the word that refers to the firmament or the expanse, the sky spread out like a vaulted ceiling above creation. And so suddenly the psalmist looks, lifts his eyes upward and calls angelic creatures who live up there and traverse that terrain. If you think about the firmament or the expanse that's up there as intended to be the border between heaven and earth, that border gets traversed by angelic beings repeatedly. And so the psalmist here, as he does in other places, calls on the angelic realm to be praising this God because it is fitting for them to do so. And of course, we've already seen they are about that business. But the psalmist can't limit his vision to just us here on the earth. He knows that God's praise is much bigger than that. It's not something that humanity created in God's image can achieve all by ourselves. There are other creatures in the universe that need to, ought to, should be about the business of praising God. So he lifts his eyes up and calls on those in the expanse of heaven to worship God as well, to praise God as well. Pressing on into verse 2, he gives us a why to praise. If verse 1 was talking about where to praise, now he speaks of why to praise, and he gives a couple of specific reasons. Praise him for his mighty deeds. What are those? At one level, anything God does is mighty, so we can praise God for whatever good we see him doing in this world. That is right and good and appropriate and fitting, but this particular word often, almost always, has specific reference to the Exodus. And so this is a way of him pointing back to praising God for the great work of redemption that he accomplished for the Old Testament Jewish people. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and he says we ought to be praising God for that. We can see one example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24. Moses is praying to the Lord, complaining about not being able to go into the land of Canaan. And he says this, O Lord Yahweh, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? 
When he says that, he's referring to specifically what he's seen God do, the the plagues of judgment that God brought about against the Egyptians in order to bring his people to salvation, rescuing them from their slavery in Egypt. God brings salvation through those acts of judgment, those mighty acts, those powerful deeds of destruction. And that's actually a pattern in the Bible. God always saves His people through an act of judgment. The cross is the preeminent example of that, of course. The gospel that we look back to, the mighty deeds that we should praise God for, are those deeds accomplished in Jesus' perfect life, His sacrificial death on the cross. That's the judgment for our sin. And so our salvation was accomplished through that great act of judgment, the death of the Son of God absorbing, receiving, enduring the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And then He rose from the dead. God exercised His power to raise Jesus from the dead, victorious over all that ails us, victorious over all that keeps us enslaved, so that we as Christians, we read this and we say, praise God for His mighty deeds. Well, what are those? Well, those are preeminently The gospel, the events of the gospel from 2,000 years ago, that's how God has rescued us from a much greater slavery. Not merely a a slavery to a, a foreign power or another nation, but a slavery to the powers of sin, Satan, and death. And Jesus' death and resurrection has broken that slavery. And for those who trust Him, we experience that freedom. And so it is right and good And most fitting to praise Him for that. Yes, it's also fitting to praise Him for all the other wonderful things He does for us in the midst of our lifetime. But don't forget about those pivotal deeds 2,000 years ago. The psalmist goes on, praise Him according to His excellent greatness. So not just praising Him for what He has done, but praising Him for who He is. And how do we know who He is? except through what He has done for us. So still there, we see most clearly the glory of God on display, the significance of God, the holiness of God on display for us in the cross more than anywhere else. But we have this wonderful Bible that God has communicated Himself to us through. He shows us His character. He shows us His excellent greatness. And we ought to respond with praise. We ought to respond with Speaking well of Him, that's what praising God is all about. Speaking well of who He is and what He's done for us. And so those, that kind of boils it down. That covers pretty much everything. Why to praise God? Praise Him for what He's done. Praise Him for who He is. And be specific. Moving on into verses 3 through 5, we get with what to praise. With what to praise. These verses give us an orchestra of instrumentation to use in the praise of God. And what's interesting about these instruments, if you were to count them, there are seven distinct instruments. A couple of them are repeated. But this is probably intentional. Oftentimes in the Bible, poetry includes a numerical kind of poetry, which is foreign to us. In English and in America, we don't, we don't often use numbers as poetic devices. Uh, but in the ancient world, it was super common 
Everybody did it, and it's there in the Bible for you. And when somebody lists seven things in a poetic passage, very often the intention is to communicate this idea of fullness and completion. And so the idea is here, bring all the musical instruments you can. All within creation are appropriate to use in God's praise. These were very common. You'll find woodwinds in the list. You'll find strings. You'll find percussion as well. And right in the middle of all of them, you'll find the dance. Tambourine and dance right there in the heart of these verses in verse 4. That reminded me of going back to Exodus again, thinking back to that event of salvation for the Old Testament people. In Exodus 15, Moses sings this great song and Miriam leads a dance in the midst of that with tambourines and dancing as a way of praising God for rescuing the people from slavery in Egypt and how fitting it is that we would use all of these things at our disposal to bring praise to our great God. With all the skill that we're given, with all the talent, with all the creativity we have, We should be praising God, not giving ourselves credit, not tooting our own horn, literally, but to point to Him, to give Him praise for giving us the talent, for giving us the ability. You know, music is powerful. God created music with a specific design. And it seems that that design includes a unique ability to move human emotion. Now, in this fallen, broken world, we can use that in wrong ways. We can use music to manipulate. It happens. We can use music to stir up a false excitement, something that's not genuinely reflected in the heart. But just because we twist something in our sin, just because we distort something in our, in our fallenness and brokenness doesn't mean we need to throw it out the window. No, we should use it rightly and recognize the value that music has to play in our lives, particularly in this area of praise. Because I would wager, if I were a wagering man, which I'm not, But if I were, I would wager that the vast majority of us Western American folk have trouble expressing our emotions to the extent that we should, whether in grief and sorrow or in joy and happiness. Some people are better than others, but generally in our culture, we have a tendency to rein those emotional expressions in. And this is not necessarily a place where that needs to happen. When we're praising God, <laughs> let those emotions be, break the bounds a little bit. There should be some exuberance and some excitement when we're talking about God and what He's done to save us. And music can help us there. It can stir our affections in a way that just reading words off of a page might not do. That's the value that it has. That's what it's for. So don't stifle yourself and you feel these emotions rising of gratitude and joy when the music is playing maybe don't squeeze it in and pull back that's the moment to sing louder sing louder be more excited and happy about your expressions of about god what has he done for you be excited and allow the music to move you in that way 
So our psalmist closes out in Psalm 150, verse 6, with this climactic statement, a universal call, who to praise. Now, it's not whom to praise. That would be God as the object of that. Who is, but who to praise is the subject. Who should praise God? Let everything that has breath praise Yah. And so if we had an orchestra in verses 3 through 5, now we've got the grand choir. Everything that has breath ought to praise Yah. Everything that, ought to ha- that has breath ought to use that breath to praise Him, to point to Him, to draw attention to Him. And so he makes that summons. Let everything that has breath praise Yah. And so as we come to that grand sweeping conclusion, inviting everything in the universe to bring to bear praise for God, we raise the question in closing, how is this going to become a reality? A psalmist can stand up here all day long and say, let everything that has breath praise Yah. He can command us, praise God. But how is it actually going to happen? How is that going to become the truth? We're talking about cosmic praise here. We're talking about universal praise. How is this going to become a reality? Or think about it in terms of a familiar promise in the prophets from Habakkuk 2.14. How will the promise of Habakkuk 2.14 come true? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. How will the Lord receive the praise that He deserves forever and ever? Missions is the means. Paul tells us in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Since the judgment curse of Genesis 3, right up until today, creation has been pregnant. And she's been experiencing the painful, heaving contractions of labor. She's ready to give birth to a new creation. When will that baby come? Well, Paul had already said in Romans 8, 19 that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The proclamation of the gospel, the primary activity of missions, is how God will identify and rescue God's children then and only then will all creation be set free from its bondage. And only then will everything that has breath praise the Lord. The promise of Habakkuk echoes prophecies from Isaiah. And Isaiah provides us with some prophetic pictures of what this will look like and ties the fulfillment both to the mission of the Messiah and also to the new creation, specifically. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, the prophet describes the Spirit's empowering of the descendant of David, the one who comes from the stump of Jesse and points forward to his judgment of the wicked. Then in verses 6 through 9, Isaiah depicts the kind of harmony that will result from the Messiah's judgment of the wicked. Isaiah eleven six through 9 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Peace is poetically depicted as prey 
safe in the presence of predators and even a child facing no danger from wild animals. Verse 7, The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Peace there is poetically depicted as carnivorous animals, no longer threatening other animals. Verse 8, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Peace there is poetically depicted as the most vulnerable humans, babies and children, no longer being threatened by poisonous snakes. Verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk was borrowing that from Isaiah when he brought that over to his audience there at a different time. Now, many many students of Scripture read these verses as describing the millennium, but Isaiah actually makes it clear that he's describing something else. He returns to this same imagery in Isaiah chapter 65, beginning in verses 17 and 18, where Isaiah quotes Yahweh as saying, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. The Lord is announcing the new creation consisting of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Verses 19 to 23, then, have puzzled many students of Scripture and have pushed some of them to reinterpret these verses as not applying to the new creation, as verses 17 and 18 seem to state rather plainly, because they speak of death, sinners, and the birth of children. But if we recognize the poetry of the passage, we don't need to pull the description away from the new creation. Just look at verses 19 and 20 for a moment. The Lord continues, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So verse 19 states the general principle. In the new creation, there will be no more weeping or distress. Then verse 20 poetically illustrates this in ways that the ancient Jewish people would have understood. There will be no more grief because of loss of children. Or there will be no more grief for the loss of parents or the aged. Even if we were to apply this to life in the millennium, it still doesn't quite fit as a literal description. Because the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the millennium, God's people have been resurrected and will not be subject to death any longer. Then the last lines of verse 20 refer first to the great blessing of those living in the new creation. For Isaiah's original audience, for a righteous person to die at 100 years old would have been considered a great blessing. And secondly, he refers to the great cursing of sinners who will not be living in the new creation 
for Isaiah's original audience, for a sinner to live in their rebellion against God for a hundred years would have been considered a great cursing. So that's the two pictures that are giving, great blessing and great cursing that are to be a reality when the new creation comes into being. In other places in Isaiah, we get more literal descriptions, we might say, of what the new creation is going to be like and what these realities are. So we might wonder, why here is he speaking in such poetic flavor? And all I can say to that is, well, he has spoken literally, and so now he provides us with a poetic picture, and poetry does something to us that is different than simple, plain description in a literal way. Like music, Poetry is designed to impact our emotions. And God, in His marvelous creativity in the Bible, has given us both. So that we see plainly what is there, and we have our emotions drawn up into it so that we can appreciate the beauty. In Isaiah alone, God has spoken of the defeat of death, God has spoken of resurrection, and He's spoken of eternal life for God's people. And He has spoken of resurrection even. He's also spoken of the eternal punishment of the wicked in the book of Isaiah. So this imagery, this poetic passage, gives us a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture that addresses the emotions in a way that literal speaking just doesn't do. Now let's continue on there in Isaiah 65 for just a second. With Isaiah 65 verses 24 and 25 then, we see the repeat of Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, clearly couched in the language and a description of the new creation. Verse 24, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. This speaks of the intimacy that they will experience with God. Verse 25, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Note the repeat of the harmonious imagery of predator and prey living together and the carnivore turning to eat straw. And note also the announcement of the fulfillment of the curse of Genesis 3, 14, and 15. The snake and the spiritual power animating it in the Garden of Eden, Satan himself, will be struck down. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. This is ultimately what our missions efforts today are moving toward and looking forward to. Finally, we look to the book of Revelation for some stirring glimpses of what this will look like. And these visions are intended to guarantee the success of missions. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 Four living creatures and the 24 elders sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A few verses down in Revelation 5 verse 13 John writes, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Revelation 5, 
gives us a picture of its success, of it happening. Continuing on in the book of Revelation, we get another vision similarly intended to help us see this. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 12. John writes, After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. If you were counting, there are seven of those there. And I think that's intentional. We see several of those in the book of Revelation. A sevenfold praise of God intended to communicate that God is to receive and worthy of all praise. Finally, we get a glimpse of the reality in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That, brothers and sisters, is our destiny. That, brothers and sisters, is the completion of the mission. That is what we're all looking forward to. And the only thing left to ask now is are you a part of this multitude? Are you now, at this moment, trusting in this Lamb who was slain for sinners? And if you are not, or you're not sure, today is the day of salvation. There will come a day when that day will be over and gone. And we all hope that it will be soon. But not so that anyone might be excluded. We want the grief and the brokenness and the suffering and the sin to cease. We long for that. And we long for every one of you to be a part of that. To continue on in the praise of our great God. And so consider... Consider your life. Consider this Savior who is worthy of all your praise, all your devotion, everything that you are. It's time to give up your life and hand it over to the one who can care for it better than you can. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your great worth that you have shown to us. You have made yourself known as the utterly praiseworthy God the utterly praiseworthy Savior 
who has come into this world not to destroy it, but to save it. And you have accomplished the pivotal work. Your son, your son, died undeservedly, accused as a criminal, convicted as a criminal. Father, thank you for such a sacrifice. Would we all come to a greater understanding of how much love is on display there for us and how much praise we ought to be giving. Help us to devote ourselves and to live a life of praise now in anticipation of the great day when our hindrances, our sin, our weaknesses, our failures to praise you as you deserve will be set to the side, utterly separated from us. And we will be given new bodies that have a greater capacity for for praise than these weak, broken bodies now. That is what you deserve. That is what we long to give you. Thank you for these glimpses, these pictures that pull us forward into the future and should stir us in our day-to-day lives now. Help us, Father. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.